0: It's the New Books in Literary Studies podcast. I'm your host, Philip Woodavine, and today I'm joined by Emily Troshenko. Dr. Troshenko is a research associate at the University of Oxford in the Faculty of Medieval and Modern Languages. Her first monograph is Kafka's Cognitive Realism, which is a kind of reevaluation of Kafka according to modern cognitive science. That's the book we're going to be talking about today. Very happy it's brought Emily to the show. Emily, thanks for being on.
1: Thank you for the invitation.
0: Um, all right. So I just wanted to quote you from the introduction to get a sense for what a cognitive realism might be. Um, you write, this study will proceed from the assumption that what a literary work is can be best understood by investigating what it does. So um, this seems to be where you could begin to leverage the real cause and effect of the cognitive sciences to understand how and what literature is actually doing. So um, I was wondering if you could just kind of talk about that, how you bring a scientific method to something that's historically been more abstract, less empirically observable, I guess.
1: Mm. So, so I guess what I was getting at with that distinction between being and doing partly arises from the the tradition in literary studies of of trying to come up with interpretations of texts, so statements essentially mm. about what texts mean. Um, but without necessarily much awareness of or indeed interest in how we get to making those statements in the first place. Um so what what the nature is of the the kinds of interactions that are happening between the text and the reader. Um so that means that you you'll typically find statements being made as though they were they had have some kind of um universal relevance, like the text means this um but eliding the idea that actually this was a this was a very private individual reading experience that led to this conclusion and you know talking mm. about the reader instead of well i <laughs> um uh, all kinds mm. of little little um tropes like that that you you start to pick up when you when you begin to take another perspective and ask okay um what is it about this aspect of the text that's making me respond in this way or what is it indeed about um aspect of my life history or uh, what i'm doing now that's making me respond like this um so once you start to ask those kind of questions then all kinds of new methods open up to you um and i guess mm-hmm. the the cognitive literary studies at the moment at least the empirical branch of of that area is is gradually trying out all kinds of methods that are more and less viable i mean they're essentially to two kinds of things that you can do if you want to investigate stuff like this empirically. One, you can ask people about their experiences or two, you can try and get at the nature of their experience or their processing of the text in some more indirect way. Um, obviously, both have drawbacks so with the first method you have to rely on people's introspective abilities and you know people aren't always um, able to they're not always aware and or able to articulate everything about their experience or um or what fed into that experience Um, Mm -hmm. but then on the other side if you're doing things like eye tracking or measuring reading times or other physiological measures or of course brain imaging which is is getting hugely trendy in this area too um, you're you're not actually measuring you're measuring something else and the relation between that something else and what you're actually interested in may be quite hard to pin down um, and of course you start intruding into the reading experience more and more then. So if you've got people hooked up to an eye tracker or obviously seeing in an fMRI scanner, mm-hmm. then start to change quite significantly. So there's all kinds of, of um, empirical challenges, but I guess the, the point is that you're able to, as you say, start to disentangle cause and effect a bit um, and say, uh, if you take a whole bunch of readers and you've got a textual feature of a particular kind it's on average likely that it will have this kind of effect. And that's, that's really interesting if we're, if we're curious in general about, you know, what makes us read fiction in the first place.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, So from what I'm hearing, it sounds like you we're trying to, in the, in that area of cognitive literary studies, it seems like you're trying to generalize the reader from an actual sample of, of living, uh, actual, like actual readers, uh, That you're, you're, I guess, treating um, their responses, their introspection, not so much as uh, the actual interpretation, the final universal meaning of it, but more like as data a little bit. Does that sound correct?
1: Mm, Yeah, yeah. Obviously, humanities people often hate the word data, and they'll talk Mm -hmm. about reductionism as a sort of dirty word. And um, I think it's, I think data are great because they can help us move towards conclusions that are. Was sort of more robust than simply a hypothesis that I might come up with based on my own single reading experience um, mm. it's important not to be too um too broad brushed about it too though I mean um, some of the some of the earlier experiments and indeed experiments happening now um, very much flatten out all kinds of individual variation between um reading participants and um and also can have slightly problematic assumptions about some kind of blank slate reader or some, some kind of you know um standard uh non expert reader who mm. will have certain qualities um and and also perhaps make assumptions about that that blank slate reader being in some way more reliable than a a literary critic who spent their whole life learning how to read really well, and obviously that that doesn't go down too well with with more traditional um, literary scholars who who feel that that expertise does have a value, and of course it does. So it's it's difficult to get the balance right between um, between valuing and uh, um, and and taking seriously individual you know singular reading experiences, and also saying, well, let's this in context let's let's explore the the commonalities between people as well as the the differences i guess that's something that for me has often been quite frustrating about humanities research is that there's so much more emphasis on on the specialness of of individual readings um to the complete Mm -hmm. exclusion of of stuff that we do share as human beings there's a lot more that's similar about us than than what differs between us and it's nice to try and uh come to a better understanding of of that stuff too i think
0: yeah i mean that makes a lot of sense and especially given um i mean the methods that the principles that you're trying to bring to bear on 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 like the problems of um of literary interpretation so i uh just just trying to draw conclusions based on based on actual reader responses um I I did notice that you had two empirical studies in your appendices. I was curious maybe how how you personally have been approaching that that challenge of of understanding what we have in common.
1: Yeah, it's certainly been a challenge. Um uh both the the experiments that I refer to in in this book were well, particularly the first one was um a hugely steep learning curve for me and um it, so the, the first experiment was one that I carried out during my my PhD. Um, I had all kinds of advice from uh, very knowledgeable and well-meaning psychologists who told me to do something completely different and much simpler. And I ignored mm-hmm. and went ahead with my completely overambitious. Uh, uh, it was a way of of trying to get away from the standard kind of psychology rating scales and very predetermined. Um, formats for people to respond in i wanted to i suppose allow allow people to um to say whatever came up when they were reading mm. a bit of kafka rather than ask them about things that i thought i was interested in um and right
0: uh, and i mean your initial definition of realism comes from i think a, a reader response you you ask someone to define realism and that's kind of how you uh opened up the discussion on on what is real what is realism um so I uh, I guess to get back to the book or the the gist of the main gist of the book, uh, the focus um, when trying to understand uh, cognition in Kafka's writing is is on visual perception in particular. So I guess I kind of wanted to ask you a bit about um, why vision and and um, how did you how did you come to how did vision become the important uh, aspect of cognition you were you were going to focus on.
1: Well, um I'd I'd written a proposal for my doctorate that uh, was very properly mainstream military criticism. It was it was all about representation of space in modernism. And I mm. I you know, it made sense and was a kind of interesting ish question, I suppose, but not really for me. And I, I got very cold feet about it just before I started the PhD and um mm-hmm and talked to my parents who were both psychologists and they said in the typical scientist way, well, what's the question you're really trying to answer? Is there one? Cause if there isn't, maybe you shouldn't <laughs> go ahead and do three or four years of um, very intensive, lonely scholarship. Um, and mm-hmm. I realized that I did have a question and it was, why is Kafka's writing so brilliant? Why, why do I still want to read it all this time after it was written and um, what makes mm-hmm. it so powerful? Uh, and, I guess, I mean, my, my intuitions about space hadn't been entirely wrong. I think there is there is something strange going on with space in Kafka, but actually I, I gradually realized that it's less space and it's more about how we perceive space. Um, and mm. vision is a huge part of that. Of course, it's not the only part. And um, people quite rightly get annoyed when, when vision is, um, as it often is, prioritise over all the other senses and um, treated as the only one that kind of matters um, it clearly isn't mm-hmm. but it is it is a very the, a very dominant sense in human cognition and um, it's responsible for a, a lot of the uh, the characteristics of how we how we experience the world around us and I think Kafka is doing some really interesting things specifically with the representation of uh, of vision and and it's uh, imaginative corollary, um, mental imagery or vision like imagining.
0: Yeah. There's a really interesting parallel drawn between, um, visual perception and, and imagine, imagined, uh, perception or percepts that are things you're perceiving that are totally imaginary. So, um, I guess a big part of, um, I, for me, the one, the thing that struck me reading this was that, um, Something could be real or could affect us as real, um, only because we, we perceive it that way. Like, um, we would have like a, like a, the reaction towards something frightening in Kafka, um, in the same way that we would react to something really actually physically, um, frightening. So it seems like there's, uh, the study is, is sort of getting into, there's, there's a certain level of cognition, um, where our visual systems are are like really seeing the the fiction even though it's just symbols on a page we're we're having a reaction to something as if it was real so um i was wondering if you could go into uh go into that and 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 how um or whether or not there's a point after which uh an imaginary person place or phenomenon is indistinguishable from a from an actually perceived one at least to to a certain part of our mind
1: um, yeah, I think, I guess this was the the idea that I was trying to sort of feel my way around in coining the term, well, if I did coin it, I, I guess some people have used it before. But uh, what I mean by cognitive realism is, is this um, correspondence that can be created between um, how aspects of perception are depicted in a text and how they um, are understood to act in the real world. Um, mm-hmm. So I think Kafka is doing that, is creating that kind of correspondence, really, quite, with quite interesting precision a lot of the time, and um, we see this in, particularly in in the, the evocation of, of how vision works. I think that um, mm-hmm. things are rep- represented in a way that corresponds not to how we normally think of vision as working. But perhaps if if the theories which I'm which I've summarised and I'm to some extent relying on are correct, um, co- corresponds with how it actually works. Um, so we sort of get past the the folk psychology and we we get to to some really um, deep rooted uh, alignment between the what's given in the text and how our minds work. Um, and that isn't complete. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't want to say that he. Um, you know is systematically just prefiguring a whole load of cognitive scientific discoveries or anything, but there there are interesting um parallels that uh that I think are part at least partly responsible for that odd kind of potency that his language has um, mm. so top, I, um so on.
0: Yeah, I I you know, I was reading and I was really surprised to read that language is processed you, you write language is processed by both the perceptual and the motor system, so it's I mean, the part of you that's in charge of, of moving you. Like your response is is as physical as your motor system, which I think is is fascinating. Um I guess maybe to get at the question a little more precisely, I, I guess I should ask. Um like what's going on in a reader's head when they're really engaged with something like Kafka, for example, and and where does that begin to differ from uh, the folk psychology or the folk assumption about um, about how vision works and and how imaginary how imagination works in that way or visually?
1: Um, yeah, so you've obviously got a whole mass of complicated stuff going on. So at the at the kind of lowest level, you've got all the, the eye movements that are um, uh, serving to take in the visual stimuli, the stuff on the page, decode the letters, then do all the sort of semantic comprehension. Um, and there'll probably be feedback loops between the the basic text processing and the comprehension processing, um, comprehension side of of the processing. Um, And then building on top of that, then you have um, uh, the stuff that's about engaging with the content of what you're reading. Um, So you'll have Mm. a kind of emotional appraisals in response to the characters. You'll have... um, some kind of mind reading or theory of mind type response. So uh, either making inferences about characters, um, states of mind, or or in some more direct sense, um, perceiving those states. Um, And as you say, you'll have all the motor stuff. So you'll have low level physiological um, responses to all kinds of uh, descriptions of actions and um, uh, settings where certain actions are likely to occur um and and part of that that motor response is the uh is the perceptual response um that we've started talking about so um i guess the 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 standard um psychological and sort of basic um early scientific model of how vision works is that uh, you move your eyes around the scene you take in visual information, travels up the optic nerve into the brain where it's it's processed and uh, and successively with um with more and more eye movements, you put together a some kind of mental or neural representation of the scene, and that 's what allows you to see the stuff that you 're looking at um, so this this kind of seems to make sense as far as it goes, but when you start to uh, ask ask how that mental representation actually allows us to have the experience of seeing something gets a bit more tricky because what is what is the nature of that neural representation? There's, there's, there's good candidates. So um, uh, primary visual cortex, for example, is known to um, represent uh, the current stimuli in a retinotopic fashion, i.e. corresponding to the, uh, the patterns of stimulation on the retina. Um, Hmm. so you can, you can kind of decode backwards from looking at, at V1 to what you were seeing. But even if you can do that, there's, there's all kinds of distortions. And of course, nothing's in 3d, nothing's in color. Um, you're not explaining a whole lot of stuff and you're certainly not explaining why that should give rise to some kind of experience at all. Um, Hmm. you're also probably relying on some kind of little, um, uh, some kind of homunculus some kind of um metacognitive agent who who looks at the uh that neural display reads the stuff off it and then mm. you know, uses it to, to know what's being seen so then you're then you're um in a position where you have to explain how that homunculus is functioning um and this this kind of model is still very much um uh, present in, in current scientific theories people will actually talk about in scare quotes but but seriously like the mind's eye function and things like that mm-hmm. um, but you have you have this huge uh, lot of unexplained stuff and you have what, what Dave Chalmers called the hard problem the problem of why uh, physical processing should give rise to subjective experience at all um, mm-hmm. so that's very that's very um, acutely posed by that type of model of perception and so Mm uh alternative models have been proposed that say in fact seeing doesn't rely on building up an internal representation of what is being seen you don't need to do that these kind of theories Mm -hmm. inactive theories or sensory motor theories say because well it's all out there in the world for you to look at when you need to so why would the brain bother to put together a, a very um computationally costly representation doesn't need to um so instead mm. the idea in, in this kind of theory and it varies between um kind of sub theories but uh the basic idea that is that seeing is is more about interacting with your environment so it's it's interacting with your surroundings with mastery of the relevant laws of sensory motor contingency or in ordinary language mm-hmm. um with a knowledge of what would change if i were to move in a certain way or the object that i'm looking at were to move a very low level detailed um, knowledge of those those contingent interactions when it comes to reflectance and um, and contrast and um, uh, and size and perspective and so on um, built up over a lifetime of, of perceiving stuff um, so sure sure so that's that's kind of that's the alternative and active model of perception, and that's the one that I think kafka is is tapping into really quite directly by. I, I think it's it's really it's really striking once you start to think about it this way because he so often just doesn't give you nearly as much detail as you were probably expecting in descriptions mm. and stuff. Um, and often I think you don't really notice that until you start looking for it because it you read it really easily and it it you know you just flow through it so naturally. But there is there are a huge number of gaps and, and gappiness is one of the, um, the main, uh, perceptual characteristics that theories like in activism try to, uh, try to account for, you know, we mm. like to think that we have a, a hugely detailed model of the world available to us at any point, but we really don't. Um, and popular demonstrations to things like change blindness, um, or an in, inattentional blindness with the gorilla who walks through the, uh, the basketball game um uh, these things show that we you know we can just miss huge things right in front of us all the time and um mm-hmm. and that our, our grasp on our surroundings is much is much more precarious than we might like to think so i think kafka's playing with that and and using it to unsettle us um but also drawing us in because it really does it does correspond to how we uh, we engage perceptually with with real environments
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, when you, uh, when you started, when you began to define the term Kafkaesque, or at least what's called Kafkaesque, if, if it's not a real, um, quality in Kafka's writing, is, um, as something that's both compelling and, uh, unsettling. So it seems like you're trying to better understand something that, some aspects of visual perception that, that might be more precarious than we, we might, um, think of or assume. Um, so I, I want to kind of get into how you apply these ideas to some actual Kafka, some actual, um, this of Kafka's writing, I, uh, in chapter three, after having built up these ideas and having, um, sort of begun to establish your position, uh, in like the inactivist camp, I guess, or the, with the sensory motor, uh, theory of visual perception. Um, we get into like a really interesting analysis of the opening of Der process or the trial. Um, so, or was that, is that the right name? Mm, yeah. Der process, oh, I remember it's dare process. Perfect. Um, so, I mean, you begin to say, you say that uh, the immediate environment exists only insofar as K, the, the main character, K, interacts with it, but um, what little we know about it is perfectly adequate, perhaps, because simply mentioning a movement or action creates the greater effect of, a greater effect of cognitive verisimilitude. Um, it's It seems to me it's it's like, when you talk about gappiness, it's like the spaces in between frames of a film where, and our and brain is just sort of. Uh, filling in the rest and and making it contiguous and and um, and and making objects seem permanent in their movements. So, um, I was hoping you could go a little further into um, how Kafka is is, I guess, evoking uh, an imaginary perception that seems um, that seems real and and just how and in just what ways um, it's real, given the inactivist account of. Of uh, perception and um, and that,
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, so, well, that passage that you talk about is is probably my favourite bit of Kafka, and mm. I think it's just it is remarkable how little it says, and yet, uh, at least for me, and I think for many other people that I've talked to, how little you miss all the detail that you might normally expect. Um, mm. So, you know, you really don't know anything about about where the protagonist K is is waking up um until you learn that he sees something from his pillow um and so you can infer that he's in bed and then it says there's a knock so you kind of infer that he's in a room with a door and um and you know it yeah. proceeds like that very much from just very minimal hints um to create something that that just works, that you just that you just kind of take for granted. And whether you do fill in all the gaps or not, I'm not sure. I think this is part of the, um, this is one of the uh, the entailments of of the inactivist theory is that there will be lots of gaps, and you may not even need feel the need to fill them. Um, it may just not be necessary. So this is mm-hmm. this is I think one of the things that makes makes the reading process flow in a slightly different way from um, you know perhaps a more Traditional nineteenth-century realist text where you would have a long description of the room before something happened in it, because um, you don't have mm. to pause to have the, the visual description and then get on with the action, because it's actually the action that is giving you the description. All, all that you need of the description is there in the stuff that the protagonist does or doesn't do. Um, mm. So you, and then, and then the world of, of the trial sort of gradually expands in that way, just giving you very little um gradually uh bringing in hints of other places that there are usually also through action um Mm. and then starts to sort of give us give us hints of of the ways in which perception works if it's not conceived of in this pictorialist way um so if it's not about building up mental pictures but about something more more action bound so there will be moments moments where for example um you just come into a room and it's all there just all at once without you having Mm. to to do some kind of um, cumulative building up of the picture of the room. Um, So he walks into some ultra crowded sitting room and, and it's just as if he could have seen all the detail already, even though he he couldn't possibly have, because he's only probably had time for a very few eye movements. Uh, And so you get, you get sort of, again, um, little challenges to that, that usual way of thinking about um, vision. Um, mm. And then you have starts uh, little ways that uh, vision starts to merge with imagination more. Um, things start to feel a bit weird and not quite make sense. And um, for example, mm. the, the famous um, lumber room scene where he at work walks into a room where um, one of his colleagues is being beaten by another Um, and it's not clear whether this is entirely real or not. And um, in a way it's just a normal room on this normal corridor. But then uh, he comes back, he closes the door and sort of the screams are muffled. And then he comes back again and finds that uh, in fact, nothing has changed from when he was last there. And so you get this horrible sense that actually maybe it's just some sort of figment of his imagination. Um, and and it mm-hmm. becomes very the, the kinds of indeterminacy that you get in the descriptions of that room and the kinds of ways in which his actions do or don't affect the the room itself become uh you become more acutely aware of, of those things and and of of the ambiguities that they create because we, we just can't completely be sure of the boundaries between the scene and the imagined anymore
0: um mm-hmm. yeah i mean if you have uh if you have something that seems so real when it begins to get weird or it gets to become um when it begins to move in into those those spaces or into those situations that could only exist in a fiction then and, and once you've already been sucked into the realism of it it, it must be that must be very disconcerting um mm. so that is very cool um and that's kind of the big uh the big picture take if you forgive the expression um that I'm getting from uh from Ka- what's cool about Kafka, maybe what the answer to your question is, at least for me, is that um Kafka's sort of brilliant in that he can he can make you feel like you're actually in a place that that you've never been to and that doesn't actually exist and that fantastic things can happen in. Um so I uh But well, want keeping I careful, wanna... so very normal as well. I mean it right, right. the
1: weirdness just creeps up on you, I think, rather than being, you know, it's not surreal from the outset it's it just gradually takes over i think Mm
0: -hmm. um i uh i kind of got through the main body of my questions but i have a couple of tangential questions that i kind of wanted to to throw you and see see how you respond to them uh they're not really about what you wrote about but they sort of apply so um i uh the whole idea of something that can exist only in effect or or virtually um that's super interesting to me and and um that something could be qualified as existent only because it makes you feel like it is, uh, sort of, I, I wonder, um, as virtual reality, VR is becoming more and more, um, culturally relevant is becoming more part of our media and entertainment. I, I wonder if you think there's an, an activist take a Kafka esque take on, on, um, cinematic VR. Is there, do you, do you see, um, is that something you've ever thought about? Do you think that just in terms of a director of a film, if you're directing an audience's attention in, in a, in a, in a virtual uh, experience in the same way that Kafka's writing is a virtual experience. Do you think that there's, um, there's opportunity to, to explore that kind of aesthetic effect on people? Um, Do you see that as being an object of cognitive literary studies? Do you think that there's any applications of, of your own conclusions, your own thinking on, on that kind of, uh, interaction of, of text and mind. If we think of, um, we think of the virtual experience as a text.
1: Mm, Gosh, lots of questions. Um, (laughs) yeah, I, I don't know a huge amount about, um, virtual reality stuff, but I guess, I guess one of the obvious, um, points of connection is, is this idea about, uh, about expectation and, um, and how much you need to be given in order to draw certain conclusions about, uh, your environment, say, um, so there's lots of, lots of evidence about the extent to which, you know, what we expect to see, uh, drives what we do see. Um, so mm. all the change blindness stuff that I mentioned, but also, um, in a more general sense, the idea of, uh, something that's becoming very, um, very exciting and, and fashionable and, in cognitive science at the moment predictive coding or or bayesian um theories of uh of cognition um people like the philosopher andy clark for example um saying this is going to just revolutionize cognitive science it's it's all about um the idea that what the mind is doing is trying to account for the incoming sensory data by matching it with some kind of top-down uh prediction and the idea is Mm. to, to minimize the prediction error uh so the so in that, in that kind of model, the, the actual incoming data is only significant if it proves your prior prediction wrong and forces you to re- revise your model. Otherwise, it doesn't mm. necessarily matter usually what the incoming stuff is. If it corresponds to your model, then you, it's almost, uh, it's almost redundant. Um, mm. so I think maybe that kind of idea and, and the thoughts about inactivism that we've talked about, um, give you a way of thinking about uh, the construction of, of virtual environments in in a slightly different and a slightly more parsimonious way, I guess, because um, you're not having to just like just like Kafka is kind of getting away from this very long entrenched um, idea in poetics that creating a vivid uh, reading experience requires you to paint a, a verbal picture. Um, mm-hmm. You can get away from that idea maybe in 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 other media as well and um actually give people rather little give people these hints give people all the gaffiness and see what they do with it and whether they even notice it um i think you're getting you're you're seeing some of that applied to um in artificial intelligence contexts you know people trying out these these less um representationless models of perception seeing whether they work better in uh, in robots um and they seem to it seems to get around a lot of the um the problems of like computational demands and and actually work quite well. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, there's, there's lots of interesting stuff that could be done there. I don't know how much cognitive literary studies will contribute, but I hope it will get involved in all kinds of exciting stuff like that. Cause I guess this is one of the main, the main excitements for me of doing cognitive as opposed to other kinds of, of literary work is that you can really feel that you're in a dialogue with a whole lot of other, burgeoning fast-moving fields rather than a sort of um a bit of a backwater which it felt to me as an undergraduate that that the field mm-hmm. was um and not that we should i think people people who are more perhaps traditionalists in thinking about these things perhaps worry that you know if we're if we're entering into a dialogue with the cognitive sciences well we're just going to be the sort of Poor sister who has nothing to contribute. I absolutely don't think that's the case. And I, um, mm. though, although this book is is primarily taking scientific insights and seeing what can they say about Kafka. I'm more and more interested in in how we can say stuff back and how we can, you know, adapt empirical methodologies to work well for telling us about literary reading, yes, but also then by extension about how minds work in general. Um, I'm mm. just contributing to those debates in a very um, uh, Equal and two-way fashion. I think that's that's what I really hope that cognitive literary science or whatever you want to call it will will end up doing. So, yeah, mm. virtual reality definitely. If we can, that would be excellent.
0: <laughs> yeah. I okay. I, I just have one last question for you. Um, you write uh, that this investigation is really uh, only in the early stages, and so that many questions have to remain just questions, uh, or at least. They might, might become better defined questions. I, I'm wondering. Um, this book was published in February of 2014. I, I'm wondering what's occupying you now um, in your work, in your in your research, and um, what are you what are you working on now? Um,
1: yeah, I guess I've I've gone a little bit further down the route of thinking about differences between readers. So um, I have a longstanding interest in in mental health from um, my own experience past six years and writing a blog about eating disorders. And I've now mm. just started to put that those interests together with my, my literary stuff. Um, I collaborated with an eating disorders charity, BEACH, last year, um, starting to investigate the connections between people's reading habits and their mental health. Um, and got, got some really fascinating stuff out of, of the survey that we conducted. And um, I'm just starting to design... Empirical work that will uh, start to again, you know, get at the, the potential causal mechanisms, both mechanisms of um, uh, of therapeutic benefit and potentially um, harm as well. Uh, I think there's a, a huge amount to be learnt there, and and lots of assumptions about, you know, um, how literature must be good for us in certain ways, but these assumptions are not very often <laughs> rigorously tested. So it'll be interesting to to do that, um, and that's yeah, that's that's. Actually, becoming really satisfying and a really uh, a really nice way of linking uh, interests of mine that have been quite distinct until this point. Um, so, I'm mm-hmm. thinking about mind body feedback. Obviously, becomes very important in the context of disordered eating. Um, so, I've just just finished a, a paper on that, uh, thinking about how feedback, um, positive feedback loops in particular, can be thought of as quite important to, to reading in general but also particularly reading when we uh, have mental health problems in the picture so uh, yeah that's kind of where I'm going at the moment